We began this Sunday uh, the series on the Advent, and we are in the book of Isaiah, chapter 9, the prophecy there. Hear now the word of the Lord. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in a land of deep darkness, on them light shined. He has multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, and they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as in the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult, and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. The sermons each Sunday, as well as the sermon on Christmas Eve, will center around this passage that we have before us. It is the prophecy of Isaiah. Isaiah is the prophet that lived 700 plus years before Christ and is one of the major prophets in that he wrote a lot and a lot was preserved. Very long book of a collection of the sermons as well as the narratives of Isaiah the prophet. You recognize here very quickly passages that are obviously messianic. They have to do with the coming of Christ. And our theme today is, O come, O come, Emmanuel, the presence of God. And it just so happens that this particular passage in Isaiah's context, chapter 7, and then chapter 8, and then chapter 9, which is our text for today, walk up to the great climax of the coming of Christ. In fact, we see it rather cryptically prophesied way back in verse, in chapter 7, where the Lord in speaking to Ahaz, the king says, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. It's a prophecy God gave to the nation that there would be a child born. So right off the bat, we're looking for the birth of a child. That's the sign. A baby will turn out to be a baby in a manger. But there's a child to be born. We had seen this all the way back in the book of Ruth where there in the book of Ruth, Naomi in Bethlehem held a baby in her 
arms. The very last scene of the drama of the book of Luke. Someone who it was said would be the redeemer of Israel. Before that, we look back and we see that Moses' older sister, Miriam, served as a nurse to the baby Moses, the one who would be the Savior, the rescuer, the deliverer of his people. Before that, we saw Sarah receiving from the sheer promise of God in spite of all the physical impossibilities the birth of a little baby, Isaac. God likes that sign. In fact, that's what he said at the very beginning. When mankind first sinned in the garden, God said, there'll be a seed, an offspring, a child. And when little baby Cain was born, what was the jubilant exclamation of Eve? I have gotten a man from the Lord. This is the one. This is he. As we noticed, it wasn't Cain. <laughs> it wasn't really Isaac. They played their part all. It was Moses in a typical sense and in a literal physical sense in the days of the Egyptian bondage. But they keep looking forward. They keep looking to the womb, the barren womb. They keep looking for the day when that baby will be born. Because when that baby is born, that baby will be the very presence of God. In that little human baby's deity, divinity, that little baby will be God. Now, God with us. And that's what the word Emmanuel means. His name is called Emmanuel because it means, L at the end, God imminent, God near, God close. Emmanuel. And it doesn't stop there. Later on in the history of Israel, there were great issues that took place and the Lord speaks of deliverance and in chapter 8 verse 8 he talks about filling the breadth of the land with outstretched wings O Emmanuel and then finally in verse in chapter 8 verse 10 take counsel together speak a word for God is with us. doesn't use the name Emmanuel, but the truth. Because that's really what it's all about. It's God coming to be with us. And that is precisely what we have here in this particular prophecy. One more time, we have to look at context. The very last verse of chapter 8, which launches us into chapter 9, which is our text. Listen to the language of the very last verse. And they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish 
and they will be thrust into thick darkness. What a sad prediction. The all-knowing God could look down the corridors of history and everything to the Lord is an eternal now. The Lord is in the eternal moment. And he could see the awful conditions that would be the theater, the arena into which Messiah would come. The baby would be born. And it was a dark day on the earth. It was a dark day because of massive sin, of great aggression, centuries of conquest and slaughter and migrations and warfare, centuries of deep and dark sinful practices by pagan nations, centuries and centuries of the record of man's inhumanity to mankind. Read your ancient history. Savagery, exploitation, gross abominations of religious nature, idolatry, and of a sexual nature had taken place across the human family. It was a day of anguish, of suffering, of famines, of wars, of diseases. Human history has not always been that wonderful. It's a dark and a day of anguish. The greatest darkness is that there is a famine in the land of the hearing of the word of God and there is a vacuous atmosphere with respect to the things of the Lord. The very notion and the idea of God himself in his eternality and in his great divine attributes, the Lord God of heaven and earth, the only true God, was scarcely known among men. What's more, and I suggest this, that the darkness that had come over humanity only had flickering lights in the Hebrew prophets. And I guess you know your history that the Hebrew prophets, for the most part, preceded the Greek and the Athenian philosophers. They were here first. Isaiah's a whole lot older than Plato and Aristotle and Socrates even. And even the wisdom of man, as exemplified by the marvelous discoveries and the marvelous inventions and the wonderful insights of human philosophy, the flowering of human wisdom had, had shown its emptiness. What had been considered great light had turned to darkness. The savagery and the inhumanity and the depravity of mankind had not abated It's interesting how we look to education to save us. If education would have saved us, the Greeks would have done it. They had a scald on human learning. Skiencia, science, was a science. It was fully developed. Aristotelian logic, taxonomy, But yet there's still a darkness 
over the land. I like the way it says it's distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish. They will be thrust into thick darkness. Darkness in Scripture, metaphorically, is just really obvious. It talks about ignorance, blindness, depravity, and obtuseness. Not only the inability to see the things of God, but the stubborn refusal to admit them. Changing the truth of God into a lie. Bringing a shade down over the glory of God so that we do not see and understand Him. Thick darkness, gloom. And that was the prognostication for the race for the rest of time. That was where we were going to stay. We weren't going to work our way out of it. Because we had increased in our sin and our depravity. So you check off the centuries, the 7th, 8th century when this was written, the 7th century B.C., the 6th, the 5th, the 4th, Enter all of the Greeks and the Persians and the empires. And then the largest, most powerful empire of them all, the empire of the Iron Claw, Rome itself, had now covered the planet for over a century. What looked like despair, darkness, hopelessness, in the human race was merely the backdrop into which would penetrate the light of the world. So here's the promise of hope, and it's found in this first verse. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. The former time he brought contempt upon the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. Did you Catch that? In the former days, that is in the days before Christ and the coming of Jesus Christ, these two particular tribes who were, one was the son of Leah and one was the son of Rachel's handmaiden, these two tribes had been given allotment in the land, which was a beautiful land in terms of agriculture and prosperity. They had one great resource, and that was the headwaters of the Jordan River and the Sea of Galilee, in the northern part, but they had always been a land of marginal, a land of idolatry and a land of marginal belief in God and a land that had been attractive to and had been largely settled, especially since the Assyrian conquest, settled by Gentiles, unbelievers, pagans. If there ever was a mixed multitude in Israel, it, it was in the tribal areas of these two tribes. So if Gentile darkness would come to Israel, it had already intruded upon them. But notice he says, in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. What had been made into a contemptuous place, a Gentile region, much like the Samaritan region, was going to be glorious. Where glory means the brightness. 
there's going to be a light. A light was going to shine in the, not in Jerusalem at first, not in Judea, not even in Bethlehem. The light was going to shine in, of all places, Galilee. Of all places, Galilee. Let me read the prophecy, then let me read the fulfillment. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. And then parallel to that, those who dwell in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shined. Let me read for you just one paragraph out of the Gospels. The Gospel of Matthew chapter 4. As Matthew begins to describe the ministry the public ministry of teaching and preaching and healing of Jesus Christ. The babe that came in the manger of Bethlehem now has a third of a century of living in this darkness. Seeing the despair and the gloom and the heartache and all of the the sadness all around him, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. For a third of a century, 33 years, Jesus has been in the midst of all of this, growing up in the tiny town of Nazareth. Listen to what the scripture says in Matthew chapter 4, verse 13. And leaving Nazareth, it's where Jesus grew up, born in Bethlehem, near Jerusalem, but raised in the far north in Nazareth. He went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, the territory of the two named tribes from the book of Isaiah, Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. And he quotes it. Matthew quotes it, this passage we just read. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, the Galilee, the Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and the shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. That's the coming of the light. And Jesus himself said it throughout his ministry. I am the light of the world. It says the light shined in darkness, John reports. And the darkness did not overcome him. He is the light of the world. He is the light of the truth. We're lying in deceit. He's the light of God's knowledge where ignorance has prevailed. He's the light of healing where diseases are rampant. And where discouragement and despair has taken over, in comes Jesus, especially to that dark place. Now, Jesus can do that for the nation. Can't he do that for you? Can he bring light to your soul, to your darkness, to your gloom? to your despair, to your ignorance, to your sin, 
Hear the beauty of the, the prophecy and then I'll note one little thing in the very next verse. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light and those dwelling in the region and the shadow of death. Now it's serious. It's not just darkness, it's the shadow of death. It's shades leading to death. On them a light has dawned. Who is living today in the shadow of death? Sinners. Sinners. The wages of sin is death. And if you know yourself to be a sinner this morning, you're living in the shadow of death. Just a few more risings and settings of the sun, as the old spiritual says, and your work will be done. And you're sitting today in the shadow of death because of your sin. Notice what Jesus did and notice was the nature of that light coming. And now verse 17, following the quotation of the prophet by Matthew, Matthew says, from that time Jesus began to preach. That's what brings light. Is the holding forth of the Savior. The words, the preaching, the proclamation, the good news, the joy, the announcement, the evangel of Christ Himself. This is my beloved Son, the Father says. Hear Him. Hear Jesus as He preaches. The very next phrase, from that time Jesus began to preach saying, repent. Repent. That's what brings light to the darkened, distressed, and gloomy soul. It's repentance. It is a turning around and a turning away from sin and a turning to Christ. Turning away from the, the treak into the thicker and thicker darkness which leads to the outer darkness of hell. But it's the turning to the light of the world that is Jesus Christ. Can I make one more plea? That if you're in this room this morning or you're watching on the live stream or on the re recorded video, that you will come to the light of the world. Come to Christ. He'll turn all your darkness into day. Eternal, everlasting, Day.